Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast and a whole load of badass. This is our end of year special when we run down some of the brilliant women that we have met this year. Uh, The Badass Women's Hour team, which is me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton, have had the privilege of interviewing, meeting some true badasses. We've got women on this podcast who are inspiring, moving and funny and we can't wait for you to meet them too. Uh, Now it's just me and Nat here tonight because Emma Sexton is off sunning herself somewhere Um, but I'm picking our first interview and it's with Josie Norton, the CEO of Choose Love. Uh, Josie was the woman who went out and started charity based on what she saw in the refugee camps in Calais and she is just an incredible woman. Josie, tell us, you were sat there thinking, what can I do to help? What did you do next? So in... um... August 2015 um so in fact so in 2015 one million people arrived in Europe fleeing war and conflict and other terrible situations um and we were seeing all these images on the news of the boats of really sad images of people drowning of people living in awful conditions in Calais and it kind of felt just like putting a status on Facebook didn't really feel like enough anymore. Um, so myself and some couple of friends uh, decided that we would try and raise a thousand pounds and one van load of stuff to take to Calais, so like tents and shoes. Um, and we started a hashtag, which at the time was Help Calais, um, but it went totally viral and we accidentally raised 56,000 pounds in a week <laughs> um, and started an Amazon wish list of all those most wanted items and got a phone call from the storage who'd given us one room of free storage saying, you've got 7,000 packages arriving tomorrow. So you need to get some volunteers down and you need to learn to, to sort this out. So we're like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? Um, so we suddenly were advertising on Twitter for volunteers. We were learning to pack and sort a volunteer from who did logistics in a prison came down and was like teaching us about palletizing I didn't even know what a pallet was <laughs> um and so so that happened every day for five weeks um and then we realized that we didn't actually know who we were going to give any of this stuff to and we felt such a sense I think of responsibility um to the public who'd entrusted us with with their money and um bought these these items and we wanted to make sure they were going to the right place and so we went to Calais um, and expected to find the big charity or the governmental body who was there taking care of all these people. Um, and what we found was 5,000 people living in a field, essentially, um, with 
with nothing. Like babies had no nappies on, families didn't have food. If they had a tent at all, it was a rubbish festival one with holes in it. Um, you know, there was no wash facilities, no toilets, no, you know, the, it, it, I never expected to see anything like that, I think, with my own eyes, let alone in, in Europe. Um, and it was really, really shocking. Um, and we also, on, on, on that first visit, met uh, a boy from Syria um, who was 15 and he was telling us about his his journey um, coming over and he was saying that the smugglers put so many people on the boats and when the boat started to sink they were throwing people off the boats who um, who were on their own so he clung to this boy next to him and said we're brothers we're brothers and he was like and now we're, now we're both here and we were like but where's your where's your family and he was like no I don't I don't have any family I'm I'm here by myself and so it was also at the same moment we suddenly had to understand like god you know there there are children do, on this journey who've lost everything and, and in fact the youngest unaccompanied child that was living in Calais was eight um and we just really felt that we couldn't um unsee what we'd seen um so we ended up partnering with a local french association renting a warehouse starting a distribution system a shelter building program and there was a kind of like i guess i'm sure you all remember the the image of that little boy island kurdi mm -hmm. um who washed up on the shore and that kind of started some kind of like explosion of compassion in the british public i think and so lots of people who were so skilled be that at running huge kitchens or um, were youth workers or you know p different people were, were coming over to help and forming their, their own organizations and we were really lucky to kind of act as an umbrella to a lot of them because we were able to carry on this this like funding and finding volunteers and organizing and kind of yeah and, and it's it was pretty mad we ended up becoming um, I guess in essence camp management of a refugee camp that grew to nearly 12,000 people wow and then also started to fund projects in, in other countries as well. So the thing that shocked me when I read that story was you said you turned up there and there was nothing. Yeah. Where were where were the charities that we think of when we think of refugee crisis? Where were they? I mean, it's it, it it's still something that I find really upsetting even three years three years on. Um, I was just in Greece a couple of weeks ago and there's still people arriving and there's no one there's no one there to greet them it's a really complicated subject because it's partly it's a political issue there's no getting away from that and so um often big organizations are funded by governments and that i think make, makes them not necessarily respond uh in ways that they could be in this situation with calais france didn't declare it a humanitarian crisis so that meant that some organizations weren't able to also this this crisis is the context is changing really quickly and often the big organizations it takes the the kind of the bureaucracy which is really important and there for a reason but it can take a year to get something approved um some kind of response approved when obviously that that's too late because yeah. it, it needs it needs to be there tomorrow um so so yeah it's quite a complicated issue but but the what's been amazing in this the the, the kind of horrible um things that we've seen over the last three years of this crisis is the grassroots response and and how amazing volunteers are and um that you know even if the the big guys aren't stepping up that just your everyday person does and that's really amazing just for context what did you do before 
I used to work in music management. Um, I was a personal assistant. Um, and before that, I'd worked in different jobs in music and been a waitress and all those kind of things. Um, so, so it was almost going from an office to starting a campaign and then getting there and saying, well, right, now we need to create an organisation to support everyone that's here and volunteer management and... Yeah. <laughs> um, I think... I, I think partly because we were quite naive we 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 didn't easier. we were like well why don't why, yeah. why don't we just do this because we didn't know that all those things shouldn't really be possible and i think as well interestingly lots of the skills of of working in an office or what, whatever it is yeah. you know they're actually quite transferable because it's it's kind of it's almost it's kind of like a business and again also that thing of you know we we are so lucky that so many people came into our lives at, at, at that time who you know if i i'm not a volunteer management expert but people who were volunteer management experts arrived saying hello i'd like to volunteer and so that's that's what's been so amazing about this and why i think it's grown so much is because all the amazing people who've been a part of okay, it where i'm going you make it sound so easy and i'm sitting yeah, here thinking wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, monday it was this and then yeah. tuesday we did this and then by wednesday we did this and then thursday we just took over and we sorted out twelve thousand people yeah. and it's like actually it was not that easy yeah i can't <laughs> imagine visiting a field of five thousand people who are in a really desperate state and then even knowing where to start like what was the first thing you did um the first thing we did well there was this this local french association who we partnered with and they were they're a group of retired french teachers um and they were they'd been working when there were like 500 people there but they couldn't really cope with the 5,000 so we were listening to them actually they were like we need a warehouse mm. um and we were like okay great we'll get that and then they were like we need a shelter building program so we we're like great and then we went and found the, the money to buy the wood and then some builders you know that were were there so it, it was this amazing kind of organic thing and and now as well you know we so calais is the only place that we're operational but we now fund 80 projects in 10 countries wow. and that's everything from children's hospitals in syria to search and rescue off greece um and and it's like all of those partner organizations they're all just absolute total heroes and it's a, a privilege for us to be able to work with them and support them wow i am in like absolute awe of you no really it's, <laughs> it's all the people on the ground they're the real real heroes so you said you're still operational in Calais. What's the situation there now? So um, in uh, October 2016, they um, evicted the camp. Um, and we kind of thought as an organisation, uh, we probably would, would then not be not be needed there. Um, and, you know, that camp was a, there was an amazing sense of community and volunteers were amazing, but it, it, it was a bad place. Um, and it was good that it was being closed but they they did it in a very violent um way that they didn't need to need to do and there weren't provisions for everybody um but 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 unfortunately there you know the the systems in france still don't work properly so people are still forced to live in in outside in these in these situations and so there are still around a thousand people in calais um but there's not allowed to be any kind of formal settlement anymore so they all kind of sleep in the woods or on the street. They're not really even allowed tents, um, yeah. although we, we do distribute tents. But the police take everyone's belongings about three times a week, uh, even to the point where they take people's shoes off, off, off their feet. So we have to distribute 
three times as three times as many things so even even though it's much less people the operation is is still quite big and of that of that thousand a hundred unaccompanied children um so one of the projects that we support is a youth team that go out and try and identify those children make sure that someone's at least taking check that they're still there every day and then trying to get them into the French system trying to get them into safe accommodation making sure they've got a phone um, one of the things thing. I read that I thought was so incredible that you did was when the camp was kind of at its biggest, you took a monthly census. Yes. So you actually counted who was there and what was happening. Yeah. Why did you do that? <laughs> because, um, so it was a great um, woman called Annie from our team who who led that. Um, but basically they, they did a few evictions before they did the main eviction and they were evicting a certain area of the camp and they were saying that there were 1,000 people there. So they'd opened 1,000 uh, spaces in an accommodation centre, but we knew that there were 6,000 people living there um, and a huge number of unaccompanied minors again. Um, and so the only way that we were able to kind of to do advocacy and be shouting that this is not okay is to have our own, our own data. Um, so that's why we did the census. Um, and that was really that was really really important for us and the same actually doing that census is what enabled us to do a lot of advocacy around the issue of unaccompanied children do you think it made a difference actually having those numbers to be able to say you're you're lying to us we can show you absolutely it does you uh, data is really really important and i think we were really lucky as well because the situation then got taken very seriously by by mps and um by newspapers and i think without that data that wouldn't have been possible for you as someone who you know, essentially career changed into this how has it affected your life um well I don't have a life as much as I used to <laughs> well actually you know now we're three years on it's calmed down a tiny bit but um I it's a really weird thing because I feel I feel so privileged and so lucky we all feel so privileged and so lucky to do this and I but I feel weird saying that because so many people are suffering and it's such an awful situation. Um, but it's, I've, we all, that's something I always say is that it's like we've seen the worst of humanity, but also the best. Mm -hmm. And so just feel so lucky to get to, to work with people and be inspired every day. And, and that's both the, the people, the refugees themselves and people, you know, seeing on Instagram a, a kid's bake sale where they're raising money for help refugees. It's just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Josie, how do you kind of look after yourself? Because you must, you know, you're exposing yourself to some really difficult situations, human beings who are really struggling. How do you look after yourself? Um, so in the beginning, if being truthful, we, we weren't. And there was a real thing of like volunteer burnout was a real, mm. a real thing. Um, so, so now as, as we've kind of formalized, like it's really important that people take their their days off and it's really important to take time for yourself um you know talk 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 to someone about these experiences it's really really important um and then you know just little things if you're feeling a bit like oh god this is a bit much I like go get my nails done or <laughs> in, our, in our team the girls always talk about things like that um but again you know we're we're not the teams on the ground who are doing the everyday work they're the ones really really seeing the hard things and, and indeed the people going through it um so we all kind of we have a responsibility to look after ourselves so that we can continue to support them i think that's such a great message isn't it because we forget that that actually you can't support other people if you don't look after yeah, yourself yeah it's really true it's, re it's really important yeah amazing um so we have a tweet from anthony that i want to um 
I want to talk about because I think I think this is a mentality that a lot of people have. So he says people preach about refugees and set up charities. But where are the charities to get the people off the streets in the UK? We see ex-soldiers who served our country and they cannot get help to get a house. We see mentally ill who can't get a house, men committing suicide, and there's no help for them. So, Josie, <laughs> I think that there needs to be help for them and <laughs> help for yeah. refugees. Why can't there be help for them? I don't think it needs to be one or the other. Um, I think we have to have compassion for all people. And these are, I, 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 t- I totally agree. You know, there, there is a real problem with with homelessness at the moment it's really scary how much you can see that more as you're walking around mm-hmm. um london and actually some of the organizations we work with do also do work with the homeless population in do london. you find that attitude though of um if we give to them we take away from us particularly prevalent when it comes to talking about refugees sometimes yeah i think you know especially online you mm-hmm. see that a lot um and people I think are forgetting that these are human beings and it could be your mom or it could be your child or they, these are people who just had a, a like a bad card of hands dealt to them um yeah. and then I also like you know one of the countries that we work in is Syria um and you know they're literally dropping bombs on schools and hospitals and that that is quite different to to, yeah. to any situation that's happening in mm-hmm. in the UK now so um I, yeah I I just I think we have to have compassion for everybody. And yeah, and also the thing that, that really gets on my nerves is the fact that if you're in the UK, you are here because of luck. Yeah, exactly. And just because you're lucky enough to be born in a country that can look after you and give you opportunity, are we then saying that if you're unlucky to be born, what, that you don't deserve the same opportunities as us? That's the attitude that I just struggle, like that, that I just can't get my head around that, mm-hmm. why you would not want, you know greatness for another human being on this planet and why you think that what you have in the uk is yours solely yours and you've earned some right to it yeah. that's the attitude it feels to me i've since doing this i like before i'd never i just totally took having a passport for granted mm-hmm. i like didn't realize how lucky we are that we're able to just to travel and go places and I've I didn't realize how lucky I was to have an education and access to an education mm-hmm. and like to be a, a female living here like there's all these things you just don't realize how how lucky we are yeah. um and and yeah exactly like you say everyone should 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 at least have the right to be safe I think the other thing is the stigma that's around it and so people don't go back to the core of why someone would be a re- refugee they're fleeing persecution they're fleeing war again it's not reported across most of the mainstream but there are wars raging all over the world at the moment mm. which are are horrid i.e people cannot go to bed at night knowing that they're going to wake up in the morning not just from bombs but it might be the knife of a militia exactly. and so people don't connect that with people they're needing to flee and, and move to somewhere safe and so if we go back in history what's the closest thing we can think about is it world war Two, where people had to flee and get somewhere safe and I think we're not we're not showing that level of compassion because the story that comes through isn't persecution and war. It's it's econo- economic. They're mm. just coming here to get benefits or, yeah. or get a house resources, and yeah. take resources. And it's that feeling of everyone's taking. And it's so not true. But for some reason, the narrative of this is why people are fleeing, that doesn't seem to be there. 
that d- that doesn't seem to be reported the, the wrong story yeah. or the wrong message continually comes through but equally you kind of feel like you shouldn't have to have that narrative and actually i wanted to i wanted to ask josie about your choose love campaign because i'm wearing my choose love t-shirt and choose love is what we would like all human beings to do <laughs> rather than thinking oh we're taking a resource <laughs> like to so can you tell us how the choose love campaign yeah came about? so so right in the beginning when we were thinking trying to raise money and um we were decided to put on a music gig um and which paloma faith headlined uh and we was like oh we should have a t-shirt and we we a friend of mine was friends with Catherine Hamnett's son um and so <laughs> Catherine Hamnett was famous for designing the choose life t-shirts which um George Michael wore and loads of really good slogan activism t-shirts um, anyway we were really lucky she said she would do the t-shirt with us and we were like what should it say maybe it should say help refugees maybe it should say refugees welcome um and then we were like talking about why we were doing this and it's that same thing that I said earlier going to Calais and looking at those people in the eyes that could be my my family that could be your family that could be us um and it, it is political and it is complicated and and but bottom line if someone's hungry then you should feed them and if someone's cold then you should try and make them warm um and so we should choose love and um that came up in the conversation it was Kath Catherine actually that said it oh. and it just totally people just really loved it and it just seemed it just fitted everything we've done and since then it's kind of taken on a life of its own and become mm-hmm. a huge huge part of our identity and and the public seem to really like it i get so many reactions from this t-shirt because quite often i'll wear it when i'm running and i'll get people like waving at me yeah. like high-fiving me and i'm like oh i feel yeah. like people do a look of like you're a yeah. nice person <laughs> <laughs> i think the other side of it is to anthony's point it's not like you're here saying okay can i have a handout please you're coming up with ways to raise money to go out and do more good. You're speaking to another individual and saying, do you want to come on board? Do you want to help out? And it's down to that individual to decide if they want to help you. Yeah. You're not actually, you're not going to anyone else for, no. for a handout. And so it's not an either or, it's an and. Absolutely. And and I, maybe this is controversial, but quite often the people that, that write those comments, I'd be really interested to know what they're doing um, to help like, the homeless and, and those things. Yeah. yeah, good point. Charity always <laughs> begins at home. Check your way around your efforts are going before Amazing. you do anything else. We were talking earlier, your um, CEO of Help Refugees, and we love a badass boss. I'm going to say, what is your kind of, what's an average day for you? Or I guess there's probably no average day, but can you give people a bit of an insight into what it's like being a CEO? <laughs> I re- yeah, I never expected that I would be a CEO. Um, it is, I guess, it, there is no, yeah, there's like you say, there's no average day. Um, we have an amazing team. We're a small team, I guess, in London. We're kind of like a startup, I guess. So it's, we are, you know, we're really always pushing on our social media channels um, because that's how we do a lot of our crowdfunding. So that could be campaigns coming in from the, from the ground. That could be celebrities wearing the Choose Love t-shirt. That could be, we're also often feeding what's going on in the ground to newspapers, all that kind of thing. Mm. Um, we've, we've always organizing fundraising events. Um, we are often, you know, we have all the different projects. We check in with them every day and get updates. They have different needs. We might need to be ordering more things. Um, we've had to, like, formalise properly as an organisation now. So there's a lot of, you know, the monitoring and evaluation and reporting and um, check-ins with our field teams, um, doing weird radio shows. And, like, <laughs> you just have, it's, like, quite, quite crazy. There's a lot of travel involved. 
Um, and it's still very much, uh, uh, we, we, we exist hand to mouth. So, um, it's still like just a constant trying to, to raise as much money as possible and get it to where it needs to go as quickly as possible and in the most effective way. And if someone felt that they wanted to help you, yes, what can they do? They can go to our website um, and you can see all the different ways that you can help. And, that you know, everyone has a capacity, has different capacities of ways to help. You know, when you've got kids, you can't probably just up and go to Calais for three weeks. So everyone can do different things. So, you know, it might be that you can collect up some donations of blankets and tents and shoes and get them over to Calais. It might be that you're going to come and volunteer. It might be that you have a particular skill um like being a doctor and you want to volunteer with one of the partners it might be that you're going to you know go and join your local refugees welcome community here in the uk it might be that you're going to put on a fundraiser for help refugees lots of people do choose love fundraisers all the time (laughs) and you know honestly that that person that donates a pound is as important as the 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 team on the ground like it's it's all connected up and that's what's really beautiful about about this and we always say that we're a movement rather than a charity um because it is all about all the different people who are who are contributing in different ways Uh, and i love that you said actually you can go and volunteer you can it feels really active yeah it is i feel like a lot of charity feels like you're just passively giving you're just like okay i can sign a direct debit and i can pass that over no, it feels like a really active campaign. It's really, really active. And that is something that's amazing. Anyone can be involved. And, in, you know, in the warehouse in Calais, you know, we've had people in their 90s volunteering. Yeah. And um, it's, it's yeah, it's really lovely. It's, it's, it's really inspiring every day. And do you give all this guidance on your website? Because as you were talking, I was like, you know, if I was to pack up this stuff, how, how would I even get it to Calais? Yeah, it's all, all, all the information's on the website. And, you know, we have our list of the most wanted items and you can email the donations coordinator who will, like, tell you how to get it there and um, all that kind of thing. And again, all these, like, systems, all the different volunteers have kind of put in place, which is so amazing. And there's a bit, always, we've always tried to have a kind of, like, uh, attitude of people saying, like, oh, actually, this might be a good idea to do it, to do it like this. Yeah. And people like learning from each other and what's going to be the next big thing that you're working on do you think do you see somewhere that you think potentially is going to hit a crisis point soon do you we we work in 10 countries at the moment in europe Mm -hmm. and the middle east Um, and like i said we've got 80 partners so though the situation in those places is kind of changing and all our partners are very um flexible and for us we don't we don't want to run before we can walk. So we're kind, of, we're kind of envision that we're just kind of staying working where we are. But it's very much still an emergency. You know, yeah. there's it's it's very much still being able to continue to raise money, to continue to buy very basics like food and nappies and tents and um, blankets and, you know, in the sun, suntan lotion for children because they, they get so burned or mosquito repellent because it's awful for in, in the camps, you know, and then soon it's already we're starting to think, oh, my God, it's about to be winter. We need to start preparing for winter. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's still very, very much that. I don't think there's not like a long term plan other than just trying to to meet meet the basic needs and where possible also support long-term projects and get people to have their independence and, and a life again the vampire strikes back badass women's hour excel on talk radio i then had the privilege of interviewing devika wood who's the founder of vida care devika's interview was 
moving and deeply profound because she went from a relationship that was rife with abuse to launching a company that's all about looking after those in the later stages of their life. Devika, tell us, what was the genesis of it all and why did you start this app? So um, I started it because I was a carer for my grandma for 12 years. Um, So she moved in with myself and my parents when she became sick and she got dementia. And unfortunately, when we tried to get care for her, they just didn't give us the right carers we got 15 minute visits so fundamentally I was just thrown into this care role at the age of you know 10 11 12 to look after somebody who was previously looking after me um and we had no idea about what like what dementia was and why she was becoming aggressive and all the different things that come alongside that and after about 12 years and her just health deteriorated so rapidly and it affected my family and it affected you know my parents relationship as well um she ended up in a care home in the last three months of her life and then she passed away sadly but if we had the right carers qualified to look after her the burden on us would have been so much less um so i made it my mission to basically change that and make sure that everyone has access to great care so you were a cancer research scientist and you worked at google before founding vida and you've also worked at a number of other platforms yeah how do you take something that's happened to you something really emotional really personal and say I'm going to set up a tech app because it's not an easy jump for a lot of people to make. No, it's not, especially when you're in a scientific, science-y role and then you end up doing business. I mean, I had no idea about starting a business. I don't know if anyone does. I mean, I always thought if you had to do a business, you had to do business studies at school. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) that rules me out then. Um, So no, then obviously, I think for me personally, I just had that passion and that drive to really change something. And I was basically learning on the job, right? When I started Vida, I was like, had no idea. And it's just learning by doing Mm. and you just build your confidence up and if you have that drive that gets you up every morning then you can get through anything and that's where I am kind of two years after launching it. So what exactly is the app? So basically it's a health tech platform um, that connects into a carer's app and a next of kin app. So everyone's basically attached to the same records that are being delivered. And we have an uh, an ability at the end of that to have chronic disease monitoring. So you can attach on IoT devices to then make it really personalised at home monitoring. IoT, IoT lady. Come on, come on, break it down for the people. (laughs) Internet of things. She needs to go back further than IoT. Okay, so so you get back to the platform. So the the link between the carers and yeah. the so like all the, they have access to all of the same records yeah so basically the the dashboard itself is integrated into our care company okay. and the dashboard has a matching algorithm that matches the right carer to the right client okay then the carers have an app so when they turn up to the door it's all gps located it's all the records are digitized so they obviously give us real-time information that comes into our dashboard that has a machine learning algorithm in the background uh, which is basically looking through any anomalies and red flags um, of that person's health and then we can intervene faster and be more proactive so if they need to go see the doctor we will get them to the doctor quicker so it's almost like as you say the carer everyone is sort of held a bit more accountable because yeah um which is good because i i know i we we as a family i know the burden and i mean it's nicely that caring for an elderly relative or a relative can be we were the same with my grandma and the the continuity of care was dreadful and right up to the time she passed and as you say it's i think this i wish i'd known about this but my (laughs) bless my nanny she passed away four years ago um but that was the thing we didn't know how long the carers had been there Mm. she didn't like some of the carers um and i think how 
how has this been re- received so far? So, I mean, the transparency that you get and the peace of mind, I think, is the fundamental thing here. I mean, when you have an ability to see that the carers turned up and mm. you're at work and you know that your mum or grandma's actually being looked after that's amazing first off and then the second aspect which is being able to communicate and see all of those records coming through so you know the medication's been given or Mm. they've been given the right type of food or you know she was feeling actually okay that day having that transparency at the real time is just so fundamentally important to everyone's well-being and peace how do you think that your grandma's life would have changed had she have had something like this um i think she i mean she would have probably not have suffered as much Mm. so it was just it was painful to see her in so much pain and you know not being able to communicate with these carers that were just coming in and fundamentally didn't care about her Mm -hmm. and then on the other side I mean if if we'd had less of a burden to care for her and actually do the hands-on care we could have actually enjoyed all those 12 years with her and that's, I think, the most important aspect yeah, to it. I, I completely agree, as you say, because it, it is a full-time worry and for, you need to have that care plan in, in place to mm. help. And I'm, I'm so surprised that, that it is so dire, which is why when you've set this up, it's fantastic. But I don't want to care about you because they work really, of course. really hard. Absolutely. So I guess it's the balance of saying you have people that are working really hard, probably working really, really long shifts, a lack of information in between the worry of a family on the other side your app is sort of the thing that That makes it all work yeah exactly and you know what carers do an unbelievable job and i've got 400 on my platform now what they have done and how much they get paid for what they do is just it's appalling that as a nation we've agreed that the lowest qualified lowest paid people will look after the most vulnerable people alone in their house as a lone worker and they get minimal support from the care companies you know they're kind of treated like skivvies you know and and what we try to do is empower these carers to have career progression so when they're utilizing the app as well we can actually do supervisions and e-learning through the app so they're actually themselves feeling empowered to deliver better care so will you turn into a, a, a care provider in a sense, almost a digital care provider? So it's basically, I guess, it's going to be the first digitally powered care provider in the UK. I <laughs> love it. Well, yeah. In the UK or the world? The world. We're going global. Yeah, we're yeah, going, yeah, yeah well. we're doing the world. So how does it work for you day to day then? Sort of what's your role in it day to day? Having nervous breakdowns. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to our world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so day to day, obviously, so I'm the founder CEO so I take on a very hands-on position of kind of I would say people management it's it's genuinely become people management on a day-to-day basis like yeah. dealing with people's insecurities and getting my actual employees in-house because they're already young people right so we've got a lot of young people working for the care company because they want to change the way that elderly care is delivered and mm. I find that super like That's inspiring lovely. it's mm. amazing um, but obviously what happens with startups you get a lot of young people working in companies and they don't have a lot of management skills they haven't worked it's probably their first job so it does become my role to kind of guide them through and I'm 28 so I'm like (laughs) this is my first role doing this (laughs) how can I tell you how to be better but you so you've managed to get over two million in investment she's going to correct me in a minute but you've also secured 1.5 in revenue or or so yeah we did two million in revenue in the first 12 months of trading okay just correcting me all over the shop just like (laughs) keep it in the twos so uh, you know when you're doing your pitch deck you, you make assumptions so again anyone that's listening the pitch deck a shortened version of the business plan you might say we're going to turn over two million in two years time so uh, you know 
you have to actually then do it you have to do it so you did two million by when so um we launched in november 16 and we did our first two million in our first financial year of trading so basically this this year that's just gone basically she's like i'm a badass (laughs) if if you didn't know just to break it down then who are your typical kind of customers or Mm -hmm. clients so what's the actual if i'm gonna go businessy what's the widget that you're bringing to the market tell me exactly what is it and the app that provides the interface between all of the relevant bits of my loved one's care. She's mm. saying who pays? Who yeah. pays? Like who who are you selling to in the market? Yeah. Like, not the investor people. Mm-hmm. So the <laughs> private clients, so like my family yeah. right. get, come to us for care and then you've also got social services. We work with local authorities. I was going to say, do you work here? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so we get government okay. funded. So that's my biggest passion, right? To solve the social care crisis. Right. Absolutely brilliant and I think that's absolutely key as well. Yeah. yeah. and I, It's yeah. got to be across the board. It <laughs> yeah, needs to be a good parallel. There's yeah. no point in going into an industry like this and saying I'm going to solve it for the private market and the private players can actually pay, right? So if you've, if you've got £20 now to spend on a carer, like, you will spend it. But on social services, you have people that have literally nothing yeah. and they are the ones that are going to be deprived of fundamentally what they have the desert, what they deserve to have, which is a carer and a good way of living towards the end of their life. And that's what I'm going to make it in my mission to kind of solve. So can you tell us a success story, like a success story that you know that your app, that your piece of technology, your idea has brought to the market that, you know, because I know that it was too late for your own grandma, but yeah. then I know mm-hmm. that you must, there are probably stories abound. Is there one that kind of touches your heart that you can share with us? Yeah. So one of our first ever clients who came on board, um, so she was this elderly so lovely like Italian fiery as hell Um, but she her husband passed away and so she was left obviously to live in this house by herself Um, and she stayed in one seat in the sofa in her living room and just wouldn't move she wouldn't shower she wouldn't eat and she would sit by this like 90 degree furnace and I think she would just she was just in a state of kind of shock right so then they engaged us to bring a carer in and we say her family yeah the family so the daughter obviously called us up and the we have a carer called Joy um, she's unbelievable. She's been with us since day one. Her personality and her passion and her just like her empathy is unbelievable. And she worked consistently with this client to literally get her to even move. And eventually, she managed to have a shower, which I know it doesn't sound like a big deal to everyone else. You can shower, but this woman showered after nine months and she sadly passed away towards the end of it but the daughter literally said to us I mean she was in tears she said if you do, if I don't have you coming in I was gonna have a nervous breakdown and I was suicidal so yeah and that's the importance isn't it of having of, of, and it works on both sides I'm sure that mm-hmm. um, Joy the carer I'm yeah. sure she sounds absolutely incredible at her job and and but I, I know in my experience it is and that's what's amazing what you're doing is matching the carers the correct mm-hmm. carer to the correct patient and actually I'm really pleased that my grandmother, um, it, well, it, it, it worked out very well in the end, but her carer was just, she was family at the end. Yeah, and exactly. actually, uh, her quality of, my grandma's quality of life for the final couple of years, once we'd got through a couple of carers which weren't perhaps compatible on both sides, um, it, it was a wonderful relationship. So I think what you're offering, and is, is, as you said, across the board is so needed. And the money, all the money stuff aside, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. It's a quality of service. It's about care. It's about helping people that, that need it and making sure that if someone is in a stage of life where it is the last few years, that they are treated with respect and also the carers have the support that they need to do a brilliant job. 
and that's really key as you say yeah. and we did touch on that it, it does work hand in hand because yeah. yeah the carers and I think that's why it's so good to have the app because as you say it helps support the carers and whatever they need in turn as well and they're not just kind of hung out to dry all the time so and it gives them it keeps them connected to us in the office yeah. right so normally what a carer would do when they would turn up to the house is they would pick up the landline and then call into the care agency yeah. and say I've arrived yeah. um, and then they're having to write down the care plan which is left in the house no one ever watches that care plan no one doesn't think with it so what they have with our app is obviously have a way to connect with us continuously and they can communicate with us any time of the day 24 7 and we utilize all of their information to also do kind of self-learning so if the notes they're giving us aren't good enough or even they're amazing we have a gamification process where we then reward them for doing a great job and then also upskill them if they need any training so it's constantly giving them progression so i want to talk about something else um and it's a letter that you wrote to yourself that we all have a copy of and the title is yet letter to my younger self you are you are a survivor who will help others and you start off um talking about yourself when you're 19 years old but by the third paragraph it starts he will throw you around like a rag doll tell us the story and why you wrote this letter and what it means to you so um I actually wrote the letter at quite a pivotal time when I was starting Vida because the experience I went through with the domestic violence and the abusive relationship at a young age, it shaped me as a person. Mm. I couldn't talk to men. I couldn't be around people unless until I was like cowering in my body. My, lang- my body language was all kind of just indicative of the fact that I was in a really bad place and I tried therapy and I tried to talk about it and I tried to comprehend it and nothing worked and then I got approached by the Guardian they were like do you want to write a letter um, to your younger self and you can choose whatever topic that is and I thought I think the best way for me to do this is actually talk about domestic violence and actually get it out there because I was ashamed of it I Mm. I was playing a victim I was embarrassed i couldn't tell people about it because I thought they would judge me that I'd be weak and why didn't I walk away Mm. and I think as soon as I did it it gave me that strength to be like hold on a second there are other women out there and other women did start to contact me as well and that's when I felt really proud of what I did Um, so it was an amazing therapy session for me writing it Um, but it was a horrible experience I mean horrible doesn't even touch on it when you're 19 and somebody tries to throw you off a balcony and kill you uh, beats you up every day and tells you that you are an awful person it stays with you forever and it will continue to stay with me because it has made a huge impression on my life but I'm using it now to be stronger and do better and that comes through in the letter because it's it's deeply personal uh and as you've just said there you know you are telling your story is telling your story almost a form of therapy yeah absolutely and I think saying it in such a a a wide platform (laughs) it's like it's everyone could see that right I think it was the best form of therapy I could have ever had because it was saying here I am whoever's been through this it's not going to break you Mm. you shouldn't let it define you and you shouldn't let it uh be what you say that you are forevermore Um, how do you how do you feel when you read it back when you hear it back or have mm. or or have you read it back i've read it back and i still cry about it (laughs) i still like i go through it and the words are so poignant in my head that they they hit somewhere and i go back to that place so it's still very hard for me to read it and even when I talk about it um, it still really affects me and I'm still I'm still really worried that I'm never going to get it out of my system because you know it's I'm now 28 and it happened when I was 19 22 and I'm still crying about it um, 
But I think I do need to keep reading it because I also underplayed it a lot and I undermined it. And a lot of domestic violence, abuse, like people that have been abused, mm. um, often undermine the extent of what they've been through. Mm. And I think it's important to keep focus on it was something huge and it's so bad. And if we don't talk about it and bring it to light and actually talk about it in the way that it is, which is horrendous, and mm. put those words to paper, people will never actually start to do and think about it. At the point that you wrote the letter, had you told anyone? Yeah, so my parents obviously knew they were my biggest rescuers, actually. So I wouldn't, have, I probably wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them, because um, mm. they actually were there when I basically he'd almost tried to throw them off the balcony, and they were the ones that were holding me and saying it's everything's going to be okay and I was bruised and I was battered so they were the people that knew and then I couldn't tell anyone I tried to tell kind of boyfriends that I would see after that and no one really understood it mm. was kind of they looked at me in a certain way and it started really? to make me feel shamed yeah you, you, you really felt a, a negative yeah from, yeah from your experience yeah. yeah absolutely I've been told that um because of what you've been through surely you should be softer and more vulnerable <laughs> Because that's because, you know, you were a victim of domestic violence. And I'm like, no, I'm strong. I am hard, armoured skin now because you have to to get through that. Mm. Um, and I did start to tell people more, my closest friends, they are unbelievably supportive about it. But I still find it very difficult. I mean, I was told when I wrote this letter that it shouldn't go public because investors may look at me in a certain way. Right. And they'd start to judge me. And when I was told that, I was like, absolutely not. Like, this is Good who I am. Mm -hmm. And if the investors are going to judge me because I was a, d a victim of domestic violence... It's probably not in the caring profession. Then I'm just going to <laughs> not swear down the microphone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they shouldn't be investing in my company anyway. And, you know, we deal with a lot of people that have... I mean, we had one client also that was left completely disabled from domestic violence from her partner. Wow. Um, lost her baby, needs full-time care now. Um, and she actually came onto the platform because she read my story. And that, oh, I wow. think, was one of the best moments of my life. And when you started writing this, so you knew it was going to go up on The Guardian, you potentially knew that it was going to help other people. Did you realise the wider impact that it would have, that it would show people that actually, you know, even with friends saying it, there, there is no stereotype of what a woman that has been through domestic violence looks like. You could have the most hardest badass exterior and still be going home and fearing for, for your life I um, think that's where you've hit the nail on the head there it is there's no stereotype mm -hmm. and people often stereotype it if you look at programs or adverts on tv and it's always a certain type of person like the refugee person mm -hmm. who is you know a certain socioeconomic class and they and they really do play up the stereotype and actually if you look at all the women that have been through it it's, it's often the most strongest people and we were talking about this earlier and mm -hmm. you go into relationships with, with men who have egos and they will break you down if you are mm -hmm. strong mm -hmm. and the strongest people will break yeah. and I think what I was trying to say is you can be a founder you can get through it you can do whatever the hell you want to do um, it's just each you have to take each step forward every yeah. day yeah um, and yeah. I, I said I, I, I opened up as well I mean I, I've also you know been in that situation uh, emotionally abusive relationship which can be is equally uh, traumatic and yeah. as you say so many when I read that letter earlier I was like gosh it, you know it, it hits home and as you say mm -hmm. it does take it takes a lot to be able to come out and admit it and then to, to be stronger and it's so weird that you not weird I guess but even I've just taken some some real empathy from that because people say to me but you're so strong and you're so sunny and you're so driven and it's like yeah, yeah. because I've had to be and actually <laughs> yeah. and I won't again I don't want to swear on the mic because I won't let that 
deep, yeah. take me down again. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. and um, and yeah. So I, I, as you say, I think that the, the impact it can have on, on being brave enough, and I do think it takes bravery to to show everyone that actually there is no stereotype and. Yeah, good for you. And I think it takes women like me who get to a position of success mm. to actually show that there is a path for younger women because it's going to happen at all ages, right? And mm. if you don't show that there is a way out of it and you will get there um, and we don't start making it achievable, um, young girls will get stuck in a really bad place. And not everyone has the support that I had of my parents, right? So it's they, they will be in dire situations. And I think we need to do more as a society to prevent that from happening. This is going to sound corny, but is there an element of resilience that builds from coming from a situation like that that then aids you in the rest of your life? Because I often think um, when you look at a lot of business people or entrepreneurs, there is always some story of trauma. There is something big that happened that either pushed them in another direction or that gave them some kind of inner grit that you just don't get from living life going from A to B day to day. is there a resilience that came from it or, or do you do you see it slightly differently? No, I, it is resilience. It's literally my parents always say you are the biggest fighter and like you've gone through such adversity to get to where you are. My best friend Callum was telling me last night, he said, when you tell people your story, um, people look so shocked because mm. they see you as this person and then you, they hear this and they're like, how the hell has she come <laughs> to be who she is? Yeah. And I always respect him for saying that to me because he's like, you've got to remember how resilient you must be to have gone through that to still be where you are, not just be in a standard situation, be achieving like loads. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I don't think about what I'm achieving because I'm quite self-deprecating as most women are. And we're like, (laughs) oh, you know, it's nothing. But actually the resilience and the fighter that came out of it through that. And I, you know, it did fight my way out of that relationship physically saving my life from it so it had to be something right to still be alive today and did it drive the business did it did it also inspire the the way that you've built the business and make you think differently about the sort of thing you wanted to do because it sounds to me like you're an entrepreneur that's socially motivated you could have you could have gone off and started anything I guess based on um, your work credentials yeah but it was the social drive for me so it's making everyone regardless of your class regardless of how much you can afford or whatever money you have or who your family is, that you have access to the care and the freedom of choice that you deserve to stay at home and be looked after. And that was always what was driving in my my mission of feeder mm-hmm. and will continue to drive. So I will never sell out to just private until I've taken over and solved the care crisis. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. I just love Devika's passion and commitment to changing things and really making things different. Um, Devika's energy and focus is just matched by our next guest. We had the fabulous Viv Groskop in the studio talking just about life as a problem page agony aunt talking about writing about comedy um i don't think we have laughed so hard throughout the entire year i think we all need a viv in our lives we basically do um can i just put her on speed dial please (laughs) (laughs) uh viv you have a podcast called dear viv what sort of thing do people ask you well it's fascinating there are various topics that come up with quite a lot of regularity actually so this has been going for three years and I would say most people who write in are women aged Mm -hmm. between probably 25 and 50 with a sort of bias towards like late 30s early 40s and very often they write in about friendship problems which is really Mm -hmm. interesting okay so and I was just reading something on the way here actually maybe it's on um Oh, it was a piece that Marisa Bate has written in the pool today, actually, saying about how uh, whenever you try to meet up with friends nowadays, everyone says, oh, yes, I have a window in October uh, 2020 (laughs) and uh, how difficult it is. uh, And everybody's lives are so busy and making commitments are really hard. So we do get a lot of questions about how to make time for friends, what to do if somebody ghosts you as a friend, what to do if loads of stuff about weddings and friends oh my I god get. weddings of oh my friend has booked the same wedding venue as me and all oh, my friends got the same wedding dress as me or my friends invited me to this hen party and there's a butler in the buff and I don't want to go and mm. oh it's the whole wedding etiquette thing is a massive what uh, can you say if your friend has bought the same wedding dress as you do you, do you I would say I would be like I would say that's against the friendship code <laughs> It's just a bit you weird. It's just a bit weird, the dress, a knowing bit weird. It's just a bit weird. Yeah. Well, I tend to run through the options for the person <laughs> or run through the different scenarios. So you could say, yeah, get really angry and never be friends with this person anymore because they're clearly a psycho, right? Which is obviously yeah. the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> or, or another thing would be to say, you know, we're all living difficult lives. We're all under a lot of pre- pressure maybe this woman is feeling really insecure and she looked to you for inspiration. Let it go. Yeah. No. I try to give you know, lots yeah. of different options, but always trying to be compassionate, you know, not only to the person writing in, but to the other people around them. Because often when people are writing in, it's, you're only hearing it from their point of view. Yeah, and you have to think about the other people around them as well. But if you're a better woman than I, because as soon as you said same wedding venue, I was like, no. And then you said dress, and I was like, no. I mean, yeah. you know, it's just is there is there not? There's an unwritten girl friendship code thing. Very weird. It is. You would be 
you'd feel like they had something against you. It's a bit odd, but it depends you. on the context, I think. Because if that person is like, I'm just thinking, somebody like my sister, right? She is zero attention to clothes, how she looks, whatever. She hates going shopping. She's much more of a person here, just wear this. So if she looked at something and thought, if it was somebody like my sister who was literally like, actually, that's a really nice dress. I know where she got it. It's in my price range. It'll probably look all right on me. I'm just going to go for it. What's the problem in that? <laughs> yeah, no, no. The answer is still Way no. Yeah, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because sometimes the pr- the problem is clear. Like the the problem is very clear to you. Like you you say no, um, but it's not so much about the problem. It's about what you're going to do next. Mm. And that's often the thing that people are having the biggest issue with is they know how they feel about the problem. They're horrified and they think it's terrible. But it, the next part would depend on how comfortable you are with confrontation, mm-hmm. whether you think that you want to be a bit more stoic. Whether you care. In your life. Yeah, whether you really <laughs> I mean, care. You know, or you think life's yeah. too short. Yeah. Or whether, you know, you absolutely love that dress and this is a deal breaker for that friendship and actually this has proven to you that that friendship was already a bit rubbish. You know, so it's all about next steps and I'm always trying to give people lots of different options for the next step because being when you're doing an agony aunt podcast or a written version you can't be prescriptive really I think some people are very prescriptive and sometimes that's what people want to hear but I think that's dangerous I think you can only give suggestions and support and the more suggestions you can give the better there's a book there called so here's the next step and I think we should you should you should just have all of the big key major issues and that way you don't have to repeat yourself and say all the big major issues here are your options and here's how you get from a to b and i think people would love that because it's true they just they want what can i do what are my options because we do know how we feel in that instance we just don't know how it will play the scenario out i love this nextsteps.com yeah Mm. oh we love it sounds like a self-help book (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so it's time for us to get a little self-help uh it is our problems of the week so Emma, do you want to kick us off or I've got yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I kick it off? So this one comes from our producer who has just moved house. She's just um, moved in and she's done the really lovely neighbourly thing, which is what I never did when I moved in, but my mum did, <laughs> which is go knock on your neighbour's door and go, hi, I'm going to introduce myself. So she's been really neighbourly, but she's got one particular neighbour who is clearly coming across as a little bit of perhaps a loner who is very excited that she's knocked on her door and is now almost trying to become her new best friend and our producer is very uncomfortable about it and having all sorts of issues and going should I invite her in should I not I don't know what to do and uh and feeling you know a little bit uncomfortable that her new neighbor wants to be more than just a neighbor Oh, that's really Any interesting. advice? We've had exactly this problem on Dear Viv, actually, but with a flatmate. So with oh. somebody who moved into a flat share and it turned out to be somebody who didn't just want a flatmate. They wanted a new best friend. Oh. <laughs> best friend BFF for life. And it's difficult. And generally, relationship mismatch uh, on a platonic level can be as stressful as relationship mismatch on a romantic, a romantic level. <laughs> uh, really interesting problem. I think what it is really about at heart is boundaries. Mm-hmm. So if you're a very boundaried person and you're good at giving other people expectations of how they can treat you, you know, we, we in life we have to always teach other people how to treat us. 
That's a bit. It's a bit weird, but you have to pretend that everyone else is like a dog, and you are training them. <laughs> so I'm a I'm very the- highly <laughs> functional person. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's it's all about showing people, you know, what you're up for, what you're not up for. Mm. So she can easily set the parameters of this relationship by making herself available or unavailable. Mm. That's so, what I said. Sorry. Interestingly, so our producer Maxine's just she wants to clarify how bad this situation is. She was very nice to her. She knocked on the door. She said hello. Sure, that was the end of the conversation. And literally the next day, first thing in the morning, she's knocking on her door, opening it up to check how Maxine has slept. Oh, but I do. But it's still boundaries, though, because I think you know Maxine is 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 concerned about this, and I think when you get that sort of concerned, I've had it before. I've had to do a lot of work on my boundaries, and that fear was because I wasn't sure how I was going to control this situation because I didn't know that I could say what I needed and what I didn't want, and then that creates all this awkwardness. But when you're really clear in your boundaries, you can really meet people with kindness, be open to them without it like causing you stress question to the producer because i can see you do you have a peephole <laughs> yes you have a peep right so the first boundary is the door don't yeah, have a peephole don't out. don't the answer the door yeah. answer. that's that's the bottom line don't yeah. open it that's yeah. the boundary yeah uh and if she's out there don't don't answer yeah. the door You're just busy. keep that is the boundary that's there and if you pass in the hallway you know gosh i'm always just so lovely to say bye yeah. end go. of yeah go i bang on my wall because my neighbors play music at two in the morning and if they're walking out the door, because I don't want to get into an altercation, I just let them go out first. And then I leave after them. Just <laughs> to avoid avoidance. The yeah. That's not boundaries. That's not boundaries. That's just avoidance. Avoiding. The boundary is the door. <laughs> there is a door there. <laughs> just I, look I through think, the peephole. I think what does happen in these situations, and we all have issues with boundaries, and I love what you said. I think that was very beautiful. I think the better, <laughs> the, more, be yeah, the more boundaries you have, the better relationships you have with other people because yeah. you don't harbour resentment. Yeah, and you don't all get all time. like tense because yeah. you're like, oh, I don't know if I can be friends with this person. But I think in these situations we we're so frightened of facing our own boundaries and setting them because that can make us feel really nervous and that maybe we're not entitled to do that and it's quite a British Guilty. thing as well I don't yeah. want to be rude and a woman thing as well but we think instead oh what I need to do is change the other person's behavior <laughs> so you think maybe you need to say to them something like oh why do you feel the need to come round and say this to me at this time in the morning or, or you know say something that's going to make them realize that they're in the wrong but this is completely a doomed ap- approach because you can't change other people's behavior mm-hmm. and if someone thinks it's the right thing to come around to you first thing in the morning and ask if you've slept well when you're not <laughs> married not to them bad. <laughs> it's not a bad thing well it's weird it's and weird. if you have to explain to them that it's weird you've already lost yeah. i think what we've basically all agreed is that if somebody knocks on your door first thing in the morning and asks you how you've slept that's weird. No, hang on, hang on. <laughs> if this person is autistic or has learning difficulties, okay. can we just like can yep. we just be a little bit more compassionate, please? Because it, I just think if people who do something like that, which is not your social norm, it's because they don't understand social norm and it's likely that they are autistic and I think we have to that is an excellent Thank point, you. Emma Sexton. Emma for Thank president. You. Yes, very, Emma for very president. Good point. We've all <laughs> so been they're told. They're not weird, but they definitely well, need some management. And also generally being compassionate towards other people, which you can be when you set boundaries. <laughs> the more boundaries you set, the more generous and compassionate you can be to other people. Boundaries are great. We like them a lot. Uh, so 
for me this week, ladies, we're following up from last week's uh, where I was thinking about how we move what we hear they've termed a luxury friend into more of a relationship zone. Maybe What's a lu- luxury friend? Is that a friend with benefits? Yeah. It is, okay. yeah. Is that a 1980s term that I've just used? No, no we just reinvented it. Okay. We just re- renamed we just it. Luxury, luxury friend, friend. Luxury friend. <laughs> oh, I would be so good if he was Russian. Um, so I'm, I'm still working on that. But in the meantime, I've decided that I need to maybe reboost my kind of internet dating. I find internet dating very very hard i swipe right on lots of people i try not to be be picky i try not to be picky i try to be really open i match to some people i can't get a conversation going what am i doing wrong i'm just a bit sort of gobsmacked here and i want to understand what's going on you love luxury friend. Well, no, I don't love luxury. I don't know if I love luxury friend. I like luxury friend. Hang on. But I sometimes feel if you put all your eggs in one basket, mm, this is what I'm And then, you know, about. that basket drops, you've lost all your eggs. But I th- I wonder if you're not that engaged in the internet dating because you love luxury friends. <laughs> so your heart isn't really in it. Do you think that could be oh, what it is? That could be. Yeah. It could be true. It could be true. I think I sort of went into it with a definitely a sort of you know, it's maybe not the correct term phrase, but a gird your loins love attitude i was like i've got to do it i've got to if i want to have a relationship at some point in the next millennia i'm gonna to have to invest some time and try and find one so i'm there swiping away because i'm not sure i can just rely on luxury friend i'm not sure he's a winner this is really sad you're trying to protect yourself from disappointment because you want that to work out oh, oh. oh. right yeah that's totally normal we all do it but so, you don't need to do it but what happens if he's just not that into me? Well, you get over it. You cry. You go out with some girlfriends. Yeah. Have luxury cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can go on the internet with, with you know, the whole of your heart. Interesting. Interesting. Also, real life, I think. There's some really amazing men out there. You just have to be able to flirt, look them in the eye, wear a choose love t-shirt. Does that work? Excuse me, you had a challenge to chat up some men. How are you doing on that? (laughs) I chat up men all the time. (laughs) Literally, I'm always chatting up men. Can you share the results of of the challenge that Harriet set you? Yep. What was I meant to do? Chat Chat up up five of them and ask one of them out on a date. No, I would never ask that. No, my approach, no, 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 no. (laughs) This is a challenge you accepted. I I, I accepted a challenge. I just kind of said yes because we were on air and didn't have time to think of something else. I would never ask a guy out. Ever. Why? Why? Be, but I would definitely give him clear signals that if he asked me out, I would say yes. But why wouldn't you just ask him out? Because it's it's there's a world order and I'm not going to disrupt that. <laughs> wow, that's not a very badass woman, is it? Is it? Ba- no, but it is badass, right? Because we think, we think that because it's equal, that we can ask out men, right? But that is me. I'm all about feminine energy and masculine energy, right? And I think we've kind of got it a bit wrong when we try and be men and we try and be masculine. So I'm about staying in my feminine power. And oh that's my God, about... This is re- hilarious. I love this. <laughs> that's about receiving. But the thing is, you think that I'm not in control. I'm totally in control because I am giving them the signals. And how's that working out for you, love, staying in your feminine power? <laughs> Do you know what? I'm much better. Much better. My dating approach When was approach the last time now, you had sex? 
Sorry, I'm just kidding, guys. <laughs> she was going to answer though. Oh, I wasn't because I know my mum listens. Oh, yeah. But you're you're single, but you don't want to compromise. You want to stay in your feminine power. You don't want to compromise just to stop being single, right? I'm. I am. No, I wouldn't say it's a compromise. I would say that I'm. I'm very conscious of staying in my feminine power when I'm dating. Right. Wow. Goodness. And I will not and I will not be my masculine. So for instance, if I go out on a date before, I'd be like, well, I can order a drink and I can do all that. I can totally do that. But I will always let the guy do it. Wow. That's like the rules. Do you know about the rules? Uh, a little bit. The but there is a world order in the way that men operate. If you understand male psychology, female psycho- psychology, it's got nothing to do with feminism. It's about a masculine and feminine energy. Wow. I think that's a load of BS, but I really, <laughs> really respect you for following that. And I think it's fascinating. I came across this expression recently that um, they have this thing in Native American culture I didn't know about called two-spirit. And it's their word for transgender of sorts. So it basically means that inside one person, there could be a two-spirit power where there's a lot of masculine energy and feminine energy in the same person. Mm -hmm. So they call that two-spirit. And I was thinking, yeah, I'm two-spirit. I'm two-spirit. I'm I'm as much masculine masculine. as I am feminine. I don't want to be in this feminine power. I don't want to have to behave like a woman, (laughs) in inverted commas, if I feel like... Not like like a woman, because that's gender. I'm about femininity. In that (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. Choose love, not choose the giant. Hang on, so you think feminine is different to being a woman? I think you, yes, absolutely. Women, woman is about gender. You can be a, a male and you can be feminine. So I'm about masculine and feminine. My feminism is all about society valuing the fem- the feminine as much as it does the masculine. Right. Oh God. So right. When when you do meet someone and you. You, would you get married to them? No, I don't believe in marriage. I don't believe in marriage. Okay, I didn't think you would. <laughs> um, but if you had a child with them... I don't want children. You don't want children? Okay, interesting. <laughs> but that's but this is a very interesting version of choice feminism, I would say, that you're espousing. So a similar arguments come up if women say it's just as much of a feminist choice to be a stay-at-home mother yeah. because that is living in your feminine power. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Yeah. She's all about choosing love, though. Emma's all about the choice. <laughs> She's all about the choice. Oh, this is fascinating. It is. Look at this. We've. I'd really like to do a, a fly on the wall documentary of you going out dating. That would be hilarious. When was the last time you had sex? <laughs> I've, I've been married for eighteen years to the same man, so that's going to be an awkward answer, isn't it? I haven't had sex with anyone apart from my husband since nineteen ninety eight, and not with him that often. And <laughs> I do have three children, though. So those were some of our favorite badasses from 2018 uh from myself and the fabulous natalie campbell wishing you a very happy new year we will be i'm sure emma does too but she's not here so she can't say <laughs> it <laughs> uh we will be back in 2019 with more badass women than ever before we'll see you then Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.